and welcome to Circle of Influence, a collaborative podcast brought to you by the CFDA and The Real Real, which takes a deep dive into fashion sustainability, past, present, and future. In a world still reeling from the impact of COVID and social unrest, the conversation is more urgent than ever. I'm your co-host, Sarah Kozlowski, the CFDA's Vice President of Education and Sustainability Initiatives. And on the behalf of The Real Real, I'm your co-host too, Julie Gilhart, President of Tomorrow Projects and Chief Development Officer of Tomorrow Limited. Thanks for joining us. On today's episode, fittingly titled A New Lens for a New Year, we will be discussing with two leaders in our industry on how they have successfully navigated the uncharted territory many have found themselves in due to COVID-19 and their plans for moving forward as we enter into 2021. And joining us today are two esteemed guests, the Real Real CEO, Julie Wainwright, and the CFDA CEO, Stephen Kolb. Welcome both. We are so thrilled to have you joining us today. And I'm first going to just um, highlight Stephen as the CEO at the Council of Fashion Designers of America. Uh, which is a not-for-profit trade association founded in 1962 with a membership of 477 of America's foremost women's wear, men's wear, jewelry, and accessories designers. You oversee operations including New York Fashion Week, uh, professional development, philanthropic, and civic-centered initiatives. And Julie Wainwright, CEO of The Real Real, is an e-commerce pioneer who founded The Real Real in 2011, bringing authenticated luxury consignment online and changing the way people buy and sell luxury across all categories. Julie is helping to create a more sustainable future for fashion by engaging millions of members as well as brand partners including Gucci, Burberry, Stella McCartney, and the circular economy. I think we should start with a question for both of you all. Um, We have all faced nearly a year of incredible challenges, yet we were still standing. In looking ahead, What is the single biggest lesson you've learned, and how are you applying it to the year ahead? Julie, do you want to start first? Oh, sure. I would say in general that people are phenomenally resilient. And um, if you someone would have outlined exactly what happened in 2020, and they told you in November of 2019, all of these things are going to happen. There'd be a deadly virus. She'll be wearing masks. She'll be quarantined. Your business will be shut down. It may or may not open. We will have a lot of social unrest, perhaps even some rioting. And then we have an election. I think most people would have either not believed you're a runaway or just that I couldn't cope. So I would say the human spirit and the humans (laughs) that I work with are incredibly resilient. The other thing that I saw, which I loved, is the agility uh, on my team to make changes in the way we had we go through our day-to-day activity to keep our employees safe and to find new ways to consign and to keep our business going. So it's been an incredibly challenging year. But again, you know, you said Julie, so we're still standing. I'd say we're more than standing. I'd say really to keep going like this, we're triumphing. Yeah, that's so true. I would uh, have to agree with a lot of what Julie said. I think for me, we were hit with uh, these challenges. No one expected them. For me, it was just being able to make decisions without the luxury of time or knowledge. And I think that was something that uh, we had to do at CFDA. We had to look at what our plans were for 2020, our programs based on 
normal activity uh, and, and, and put them to the side and wipe the slate clean and create all new uh, program that was supporting our members and the industry. I think the thing, too, that I was struck most about um, the pandemic when it hit was how nobody was prepared. Uh, uh, there were a lot of companies that didn't have cash reserves that weren't prepared in terms of their, their distributions. They, we don't think of like, what's the worst case scenario and how should we be ready for that in the future? It's like how you're going to spend money or what a budget looks like, maybe socking a little bit of that away into the bank for a future versus, you know, having to, you know, put on that really big expensive show or shoot that marketing campaign. But thinking about like what it might be and what the resources you might need in the future in, in, in a future circumstance like this. And it's been such a year of having to navigate so much uncertainty and, and such a complex landscape like like never before. How do you both see that uh, fashion having an opportunity to lead into the future now that we do have hope on the horizon for the end of the pandemic? You know, one of the things that um, the industry can do is start embracing more forward-looking plans. And we talk a lot yeah. about sustainability, but the truth is it's it's happening on very small levels. So really putting sustainability core. I would also say putting diversity core and becoming a leader there too. So um, the industry's always, you know, I'd say every industry, not just the fashion industry is at a crossroads and how they're going to embrace change. What's clear is what happened before the pandemic going forward won't work. Are you going to have sustainability and diversity built into your platform? What does that look like? How does that get measured? Uh, who, who's accountable and setting up accountability structures? For an industry that changes very regularly in, in terms of clothes and, and collections and, and producing and selling things, the, the business of fashion, the, the mechanics of it really hasn't changed that much. And, and some of those conversations have clearly been on sustainability. Uh, you know, we have been in that space for, for a decade and, 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 and for a long time, nobody really wanted to talk to us about what we thought and, and how we could help brands become more sustainable. And now brands want to, to be, be part of that. And we've heard uh, the business of fashion, the rewiring, the system, Mr. Armani's statement, the statement we had with the BFC. There was real tangible output that roadmapped how the industry should actually start being more active. And, and I think that's happening. And so I would say that uh, moving forward, brands are really looking for that. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is something that we all need to be focused on, not just our industry, but, but, but all industries. And, and we know that the more opinion or more experience, the more background that can come into business, the better that business is going to be in, in terms of uh, 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 meeting customer needs and, and, and wants. It's also been a year uh, with a lot of adaptability uh, to respond to the economic uh, impacts of the pandemic. And a lot of innovation has come from that, especially at the emerging talent level. But looking forward, how do you see uh, opportunity for uh, designers and businesses to really protect themselves and, and to, to grow economically strong in the future? You know, we, um, I'm just going to jump in here, but we had an um, 
had had a long talk with Gucci prior to the pandemic, and we're going to do some work with them uh, in the UK and launch more of an in-store promotion. And their commitment to moving forward because the circular economy is important, because sustainability is important, because this is an easy way for for everyone to participate in something that actually has a positive environmental impact. But they, we had to pivot on a, on a dime and their commitment to figuring out digital solutions when they were more brick and mortar focused happened fairly quickly. Yeah. So I felt good about that. My own team went from in-person appointments to virtual appointments with them curbside pickup. So that was a small thing. But I would say every person selling probably two things. If they weren't digital, they had to get digital very quickly. And if they weren't multinational, it probably hurt them. We're not. And that that was a downside to us. So we don't have a large business in China, which came back faster. Uh, we were primarily a U.S.-focused business. So I would think, you know, diversity of selling platforms, marketing platforms, and um locations you do business actually is always a good idea. I would say that um, what happened with the pandemic and how it basically shut the supply chain down and how we had this kind of uh, blockage or or backlog of inventory really forced people to think differently. Um, And to Julie's point on, on what did distribution look like? And, and so they had to be clever, right? Because um, of the supply chain being shut down, as brands began to think of what that next collection uh, would be, they weren't all on the same time schedule, right? Some people were ready for September Fashion Week in New York and some weren't. So you had uh, someone like a Michael Kors who intentionally wanted to be later um, because he wanted to have his collection closer to when a customer would actually go to, go to shop it. We had our digital platform, uh, Runway360, our counterparts in Europe had, had their version as well. So there was um, you know, more, more comfort in, in, in flexibility with, with timing. And what I was, one thing that struck me was something that Prabal said, and kind of thinking more like an artist. And there are others who think like this, Kirby and Peter Moss, you know, collection one, two, three, four, as, as opposed to spring. 21 or, or whatever the, the coin seasons are called, you know, ba- based on, based on the calendar, but thinking more like an artist, like if you don't have something to say, or you don't have an idea you don't need to create a collection, you should be creating a collection when you actually have something that you're going to contribute versus just needing to turn something out. And I thought that was such a modern, um, sustainable way to think about a business is really sell or create when you have an idea. Um, and if you don't, just just let it sit. I think it's okay. And so I, I think that's some of the things that come out of this that, that people uh, had to adapt to or think differently around. Stephen, to that, to that point, I mean, what really changed were the fa- was Fashion Week. What do you think it looks like in terms of the future for a physical kind of return? Yeah, well, the, the saddest part about no live shows was I didn't get to sit next to you because we always get next to each other at fashion shows. So I miss that. But I see you now. Um, I think come February, 
we're going to be much where we were in September uh, if we follow the science and and when a vaccine is going to be available and when it's going to feel safe and, and okay to be back out. And so I think the digital, our Runway 360 platform, worked really well. Um, and what we loved about it was the democratization of, of, of collections. Because you didn't need to book a big venue. You didn't need to get a great time slot. You could create content uh, if you had a budget, make a beautiful film. If you didn't have a budget, just go on your roof with your friends and put them in your clothes and take some photos and, and do a lookbook. So I thought that was great. And that had a lot to do in terms of supporting you know, designers of color. Uh, and, and, and it really worked. But moving to September, you're going to have this hybrid, right? You're going to have this idea of, of live shows. But I think of, and I never got to meet our founder, Eleanor Lambert, but I think about what, you know, was Fashion Week in the 1950s when it was called New York Press Day and you had 100 people at the Plaza Hotel looking at the collection. I think we're going to see something like that. We're going to see smaller, uh, more focused, targeted presentation shows that are really about the clothes. But it's going to have the digital broadcast, which is going to really open it up to a consumer, but also for those that aren't able to travel mm-hmm. in Asia and Europe, a chance for them to, to be part and to see the collection and to engage in that collection. So I think you're going to see this, 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 this kind of really nice mix. I believe in a schedule, a time, a fashion week, because the fashion week is really about the DNA of a city or the DNA of the United States, American designers. And it's also about the economic impact of what that fashion week brings to a city. And it's a cultural event and it's a networking event, right? So I think that the, the defined dates will be there, but because you now put those defined dates, the nucleus, those dates in a bigger digital structure, you're getting the broader definition. Absolutely. Um, Back to sustainability. Uh, What do you both think uh, are the opportunities that that lie ahead for for small brands uh, looking into the future and how they can be more sustainable? Oh, gosh, you know, um, there's a lot of things happening right now in the supply chain. So I think they have an opportunity to slowly reinvent this supply chain, which is exciting. I also think they can choose vendors based on different criteria, perhaps, and look at diversity for their vendors, which is all part of creating a sustainable world. When you start lifting all people, it's a different kind of sustainability, but it's an important part. Um, and certainly we're, we've gotten more p- approach with people wanting to do circular economy promotions with us. So we sort of, people have woken up uh, to figuring out that if people sell the things they've already bought, not only is it good for the planet, it's good to get those goods out in circulation. My hope is consumers vote uh, based on businesses that are more sustainable, meaning that they support those businesses We're starting to see a shift and the shift got more prominent during COVID and buying habits and more of an awareness that uh, what is a sustainable fashion brand. So let's uh, I hope that's not a point in time, but a point that leads to more of a a trajectory where it's too hard to know. Now, we talk a lot about sustainability, so sometimes we're in our own echo chamber 
but, you know, I do think there's a movement. I, this is an analogy thing, but I think it's really important to think about. Governor Newsom said he's going to have no, you know, no more uh, only electric cars in 2030. And someone pointed out, well, okay, that's great. You have no infrastructure. There's no infrastructure to support in an all-electric car. So when you apply that to fashion, it becomes what infrastructure does the industry need to be sustainable? And what can the CFDA and other organizations do to give them that support? Because without the infrastructure, you have everybody creating their own. And that's going to be really hard to reach any sustainability goals. And um, I think this is where we're at this point in, in the planet where people are setting audacious goals in the future and near future, not 2050. They're saying, look, in the next 10 years, what do we need to get there? And I'd say that that's everybody's opportunity is collectively to come together and think about a platform and an infrastructure to support sustainability. I mean, I, I do think that that was one of the things that happened that I saw happen during COVID is that designers started to talk to other designers. Retailers were talking to other retailers. I mean, it, there were, the conversations were involved a lot of people and were big. So, I mean, that is, like you say, collectively, that is the fastest way forward. And it started to happen. But I think uh, it's probably you know, maybe we need to take a little responsibility in trying to keep that going. Because I think a lot of solutions and shared resources are also the way forward on that too. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I think the other thing on, on sustainability for small brands is the manufacturing, the production piece of the supply chain. As you look at how brands had to like lean into local factories, and we know young designers always kind of look local anyway, because it was research and development for many of them. And they learned how, how garments were made. They also had the, you know, the proximity in, in, in terms of just having access. But when you look about investing and in work we've done at CFDA through our fashion manufacturing initiative, investing in the infrastructure uh, of, of made in America, uh, we've done mostly our work in, in, in New York in the garment district, but that's where there's a real opportunity to have uh, a, a partnership between the factory and the designer that's very close, right? A dialogue, a conversation on how something's being made and to look at what is the technology, the equipment that we can bring to New York that will uh, be available to designers. Looking forward with larger brands, uh, innovation definitely seems to be something that is more accessible. For example, our CFDA chairman, uh, Mr. Tom Ford, who just recently, uh, Stephen, I don't know if you want to share a little bit about what he just uh, introduced last week uh, for sustainability. It was quite amazing and innovative. You know, taking um, ocean plastics and made a watch, right? And then uh, built in a competition, uh, uh, a prize, a million dollar prize, uh, an innovation prize uh, to, to, uh, developers, researchers, designers to, you know, really innovate with ocean plastic and how that can be uh, a material, a go-to material. So, you know, I, I, I thought that was such a good example of a really um, established guy, Tom Ford, right, who we expect a certain thing from. It was very unexpected, uh, but in a really good way. 
but you know, let's just talk about, there's already been some innovations like, um, and, and they're not widespread, but if you just take how much we all know genes take up a lot of water, is there an incentive for someone who has invented an incredible technology that could, that could uh, save water and actually return purified water to the rivers to make that a platform for all gene makers? Or is there more of an incentive for them to keep that uh, as, a, as a moat around their business? It's, uh, it's a very interesting question. It's almost a technology question. Are you building a platform which you then get your share or are you actually building a moat? I mean, we talked about this one time, I think, before about incentives, but also, um, you know, what would be an incentive? Like, say, for instance, if you were did policy around resale and that, you know, there was no tax on resale, you know, I mean, there's I think that's where we have to go in terms of policy and incentives. So so one way is for venture capital firms to say we're going to invest in technologies that actually move the fashion industry to a more sustainable platform. Right. So it seems like it's not going to come from the companies. It's going to come from outside the companies, from investors or policy, from governments. And I think policy, particularly with the new administration, and we see today the president-elect uh, announced that John Kerry is going to be his um, environmental czar. And we know that uh, John Kerry is very well versed and has been really involved in the environment and global warming for a very long time. So that's really encouraging to have an administration that's focused on that. And I can use an example for uh, us in the garment district when the zoning got lifted and the landlord didn't need to still have a certain amount of factory or fashion production in their building because the zoning got lifted, there needed to be incentive for those landlords to want to have the factories or keep the factories. So working with the city and the Economic Development Corporation, landlords got tax credits when they were the, uh, had factory tenants. And, and that put and secured about a half a million, 500,000 square feet, a factory that could have easily gone away because of that city support. Well, I agree. We've got a president more attuned to that. I know John Curran is very well uh, engrossed in environmental protection, but without really giving them areas of focus and, and leading them, it could be just like the proclamation here in California. We're not going to have anything but electric cars in 2030, but there's no batteries. You know, I hope we move past proclamations and, and good ideas to real actions. And maybe that yeah. happens on a statewide level. Maybe that's the answer, a city and yeah. statewide, just like you explained. And, and city level and local right? level. And that to me seems like an opportunity for job creation. For sure. You know, also, which can be really innovating because I don't, I don't think the companies, let me just say, as I've started, when I started the real world, no one uh, was talking, none of my customers or consigners were talking about sustainability as a reason for consigning. Now it's either the first or second reason they do that. And part of it's because we've been educating them on the positive impact of recirculating goods. So just taking that as a small example, I think of 
I think the industry has an obligation to educate their local governments about what what is needed. It's not regulations, it's innovations and how they can be part of it, which will bring jobs. And there are um, there are small examples of people like Tom Ford's example is amazing, but there's no infrastructure to harvest ocean plastic and turn it into something. So it's sort of like taking that inspiration and putting a structure around it. So it becomes a job creating platform that does a lot of good. So that's every industry's challenge, but the fashion industry has to take up that challenge. I think it's will, because I think that with the breakdown of the system, in a sense, um, maybe we start to focus on that a little bit more. I mean, that just hearing you all talk has been really inspiring. Thank you both for being so inspiring and being leaders of a lot of different people. <laughs> it's not easy. So um, just thank you for lending us your time and your expertise. Circle of Influence podcast is co-hosted by me, Julie Gilhard, and Sarah Kozlowski, and produced by Hanger Studios. If you like what you're hearing, rate and review. It helps other listeners to find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening. 